and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we've got a review of the critical darling from director Barry Jenkins, Moonlight. Then, in special features, we'll announce the winners and losers of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League with a recap of the fall 2016 season. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Ferreira is lost to us. He denounced God in public and surrendered the faith. That's not possible. Father Ferreira risked his life to spread our faith all over Japan. It seems to me that our mission here is more urgent than ever. We must go find Father Ferreira. This is in your hearts, then, both of you? Yes. Then I must trust God has put it down. The moment you set foot in that country, you step into high danger. Well, Midnight Warriors, as you just heard there, the very first trailer for Martin Scorsese's uh, much-anticipated new film, Silence, just dropped. And, uh, Jake, what did you think about this? Well, first off, I can't decide if Andrew Garfield, that's his name, right? That's his name. I can't decide if he suddenly can act or we all suddenly think he can act. I kind of feel like Andrew Garfield is the Donnell Gleason of 2016. <laughs> like, last year, Donnell Gleason was in everything, and he was... Not necessarily the worst part, but by no means the best part. And I feel like that's maybe where where uh, Garfield is going. And I don't hate Garfield. Like, I liked him in The Social Network. I liked him in Never Let Me Go. Period. <laughs> End of list. I didn't see his take on Spider-Man. And uh, was he in, like, a, the Harry Potter movies or something? I don't think so. Uh, I don't really know, but... I, I thought his take on uh, Desmond Doss in um, Hacksaw Ridge was fine. I, mm-hmm. I thought he did fine. He did much better once the war scenes came along. And, and he was he was darn near likable. And yeah. so, really, I, I don't know where he came from as far as landing these roles, but his agent deserves, you know, every part of that 15% he's earning. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you got to think, if, if Scorsese chose him, he chose him for a reason. And so that's, I mean, that's enough to give me faith. Uh, we And we've also got, you know, in this cast, not just Andrew Garfield, although he is sort of the the, the main character. We've also got Liam Neeson uh, and we've got Adam Driver as well. So um, some some big names in this that look pretty, pretty good. We don't see much of Neeson. Um, Driver looks just like sort of pitch perfect in this role as the 17th century missionary. Um, I believe they're... Portuguese missionaries um, who, and this is, this is based on a, a true story, um, sort of a, I don't know if it's a remake, but there, there was a film based on the same story, um, a Japanese film that was, came out, I believe in the early seventies by the same name of silence, um, which is on, I believe it's either on Hulu or it's on uh, filmstruck. So you can, I think it's on filmstruck. You can check it out there. Um, but so this is, this is material that, that has been mine before, but I'm interested to see what Scorsese does with it. I mean, it, and this looks like the, uh, the, the side of Scorsese that he goes to periodically, but we haven't seen in a while, the really exploring spirituality, exploring 
the you know the very catholic nature of being a christian um and that's i mean that's a thing that really has me excited about this film i believe when hunter saw it he said you know i say this every time a, a new scorsese trailer comes out but this looks like his best in years i'm i'm excited because i love kurosawa he's one of my favorites i know scorsese loves kurosawa mm-hmm. and so just playing around even in that same um visual landscape maybe let's say yeah uh gets me excited because scorsese loves his influences and he he loves rehashing them a little bit he very unique but he he is a a student of film is the right way to put it yeah he's you know he's one of those that there's there's sort of two camps of of these type of directors who like to you know borrow from or make nods to uh those who influence them there's like the eli roth camp where it's just like he's completely picking up everything from his influences and saying, Hey, look, I'm showing you the same thing that you've already seen. Isn't that great? And then there's the Scorsese's and the uh, Wes Anderson's and, and people like that who they, you know, they're more like almost film historians in their own way. And they are borrowing and using, and you could even say, you know, someone like Spielberg or like Lucas um, in, in the seventies contemporaries of, of Scorsese, of course, where, you know, they, they take something visually or something that has emotional resonance and they reappropriate it for what is, what it is that they need, what it is they need to do. They're not just saying, Hey, remember that thing? Hey, I just read, I just remade it. You should love it. And, and the thing that gets me most excited is much like, uh, Scorsese used uh, the life and death of Colonel Blimp for Raging Bull, mm-hmm. uh, and he had a you know close relationship to uh, was it My- Michael, Michael Powell, Powell? Mm-hmm. right? Well, with uh, Kira Kurosawa, which I don't know for sure that any of this is going to draw directly from Kurosawa's work, but we do know that he brought Kurosawa's or helped get the funding for Kurosawa's dreams to be brought. Um, to screen in the early nineties, right? Even played a small role in Dreams. Did he really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he plays, I believe, Vincent Van Gogh. <laughs> Have you seen Dreams, Chris? I haven't seen Dreams. You remember that one time in college when we sat down to watch Dreams and then something happened in the dorm and we never watched Dreams? Yeah, that was literally about 10 years ago. Close to and, 10 years ago. And I'm starting to think all the terrible things that have happened in 2016 are a result of me not having seen Dreams. I, I feel like we had a pact at one point that when we graduated or just before we graduated, we were going to watch it and that never happened. I, f- I feel like Maybe 2016 should be when I see dreams. It it might, you know, Criterion just, I think, past couple of weeks released it uh, in a uh, Blu-ray, a remastered Blu-ray edition. So that might be the way to see it. It might. I, I, I wonder if people would be interested in listening to that. I don't know if it's a war crime because I haven't seen it and you haven't seen it. I, I got to think with Martin Scorsese acting, playing Vincent Van Gogh, it's probably not. But it's still like... It's one of those things that it's been so long that I remember we were super excited to see it when it came or when we did found out about it. And then it just never, you know, it was, um, I, I believe you're the one that, that brought it up. You were like, there's this movie from Kurosawa. That's just like, he kind of took vignettes of dreams he had and made it into a film. Um, and I'm, I'm still intrigued to see it though. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's a war crime somewhere down the road. Okay. Don't throw out Scorsese's acting because, 
He was pretty good in Taxi Driver for that he was, one scene. He was, he was fine in Taxi Driver, but he wasn't playing Vincent Van Gogh in Taxi Driver. That's a, oh, I mean, he okay. Was, he was but if we're a, ranking was, directors who insist on acting in their own films, we can put him leagues ahead of uh, Tarantino. Oh, I Tarantino. That's that's not even who I thought you were going to go with. I thought you were going to go with M Night Shyamalan. Um, oh, but no, leagues leagues ahead of both those guys. Yeah, that, when we when we finally do dreams we'll do directors acting in films that's a, just that's actually a really great idea yeah i mean mel gibson's gonna be number one all right well we've gotten way off track with this uh this talk of <laughs> silence needless to say we're pretty excited about it hunter seems to be pretty excited about it uh so i'll post a link to the trailer in the show notes if you haven't seen it or if you just want to rewatch it and don't know how to google things tell us what you think at hello at war starts midnight.com Independent Spirit Award nominees were just announced, and Barry Jenkins' Moonlight is leading the pack with six nods, including Best Film and Best Director. But does it deserve the praise? We'll tell you, because we've got a review of the film, coming up next. Who is you, Sharon? I'm on time, try not to remember. Try to forget all those times. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you're gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. You gonna tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time? What's wrong? I'm good. No. I just seen good, and you ain't it. Remember the last time I saw you? Don't listen. To who, Ma? Huh? To you? Who is you, man? I ain't seen you in like a decade. It's not what I expected. What did you expect? Writer-director Barry Jenkins and playwright Terrell Alvin McCraney grew up just blocks apart from one another in the Miami neighborhood of Liberty City. And though they didn't know each other as kids, Jenkins has noted in interviews that the two are certainly kindred spirits, sharing many similar experiences throughout childhood and adolescence. Knowing this, it only seems fitting that Jenkins adapted McCraney's lightly autobiographical, yet incredibly personal unproduced play in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue for the big screen as his sophomore feature, Moonlight. The film is a story of intimacy and identity, and the ways each can be difficult for an individual to reconcile. Told in three chapters, Moonlight follows a poor gay black boy named Chiron through childhood, adolescence, and into adulthood. Chiron's outward identity is shaped by his relationships with those around him, a childhood friend named Kevin, the sage drug dealer Juan, and his single mother who is afflicted by crippling addiction. While it may sound like a film with all the ingredients you'd find in a John Singleton melodrama, Jenkins isn't telling a didactic story filled with morals about the plight of a gay inner-city youth. He's interested in bringing something more nuanced and human to the screen. So, Jake, I'm curious. And this week, my rhetorical query is simple. How did Jenkins do? I think he did really, really well. And, and that's coming from someone who didn't... I didn't fall in love with the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could talk about that more later, but I thought the direction was just really great. So what? Uh, what? That's that's interesting. So you're you're sort of divided in your enjoyment versus your uh, observation or your ability to understand the 
technical prowess here? What what is? Yeah, uh, I don't know. This I didn't. The story didn't speak to me as much okay. as maybe it did to other people, and that could have something to do with my my background or my personal life or uh, something like that. But I recognize that it was a really great film, mm-hmm. and it it just it didn't hook me. And maybe it's because I didn't know what it was going into it. I hadn't watched any trailers. And I don't know that that would have even helped me on this movie. Uh, but when I I saw the beginning and I, I said, oh, this this guy, the first character we see, uh, Mahershala Ali, that's the best I'm going to do with pronouncing his name. But he's R- Remy from House of Cards. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he plays Juan in this film. I saw him and I thought I thought he did phenomenal in this movie, by the way. But he was yeah, this, I thought he was great. He was this conf- not a conf- sort of a conflicted drug dealer who does these good things by helping out Little, and he's also selling drugs to Little's mom, who is going from you know a nurse into being a crack addict. And I don't know what we want to do about spoilers in this film. Or- um, I mean, I I think we'll we'll see where it goes. There's there's a certain level of like we just I mean that's that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty out there, I think, in, in the discussion. Um, okay. I, I actually, I actually want to kind of dive in. I think so. You're you're talking about uh, this this character Juan. He's a he's a drug dealer, but he's also sort of a um, he's he's sort of like a big brother to Little. And it, and look, should, it looks like he cares about he cares about Little and probably his community. And he has this interesting backstory about being from Cuba and being raised there. Mm-hmm. And he really takes he really acts as a father figure to little. Yeah. And and I guess we should say this this is told I said it's told in three chapters. The chapters are broken into little, um, Chiron, and Black. And each of those titles is sort of the identity that Chiron is trying to well, he's either trying to harness or or is put upon him. Um, as with little, little is the nickname that he's given. He doesn't necessarily care for it, but that is that is what everyone calls him. Um, see, I, I think the bringing up, bringing up Juan, um, he's sort of the first thing that really grabbed me about this movie. And I mean, he's literally the first character we, we see, um, but the dynamism of him as, as this drug dealer, who's also still human and still, um, while, while he is doing some really bad stuff, um, he's not, you know, he's not a Stringer Bell character. He's not a, um, he's not a character who, and Stringer Bell is even maybe a bad example because he's still, he's still a human guy, but I think he has some, some evil in him. Um, this is more, there's, there's just a lot of nuance to him and there's a lot of nuance throughout, throughout this whole film. And that's, that's what I really enjoy about it is there's not, while Chiron is our protagonist, there's not really an antagonist. And, and there's, there's several moments when you think, Oh, okay, this person or this person is going to be the person that becomes the real antagonistic figure in, um, in Chiron's life. And the fact of the matter is he's almost his own worst enemy. And he's, um, because it's the, the movie is constantly about his conflict as with masculinity, with, um, you know, all of, all of these things that he thinks. I I don't, I don't think he's his worst enemy. I think, society or uh his his group uh his community whatever it is that that we want to call it is really the big conflict about how can he be himself in that world but you know sort of back to why i 
why I'm saying I didn't love this movie is because I was in love with the opening of this movie. Mm-hmm. It it was it was such I saw such a good movie being built up, and I thought when Juan went away, mm-hmm. it it was a big absence in the film. And I get I think it did a phenomenal job of showing the absence of a strong father figure in uh, for little Chiron, whatever we're going to call him in the review. Uh, and and I think the movie felt it as well. It felt that strong father figure being missing for the last two acts. Well, but that's that's also what I really like is it's it, we didn't go through another another movie would have had, you know, it would have wasted five minutes on where he went and what happened there. And instead, it's we are, you know, left with just conversation and little little hints that um, that identify where what happened and there's something so tragic about that there's something so you know it's it's sort of both sides of um of the the coin here and it it's that the you know the bad part of him caught up with him in the end um and and that's that's very tragic not only for um you know not only for himself and also for his his girlfriend teresa who is sort of a more a mother figure uh to uh to Chiron than even his own mother, Paula, played by Naomi Harris here. How, how um, did you like Teresa and how did you how did you like Janelle Monet? I think that's how you say her name's uh, performance. Um I, I thought she was great. Like I, I thought her her acting style is a little bit um above, a little bit flashier maybe than everyone else, but mm-hmm. I think it works for the character that she is and the who she is supposed to be for um uh, for Chiron as well. And I think the contrast between her and uh, Paula, the, the mother played by Naomi, Naomi Harris, is a really nice there, – there's something um, – there's sort of a yin and yang to that there. I thought Barry Jenkins did a great job directing all the, the men in this movie in particular mm-hmm. um, I, and, and the kids. He did a great job of the kids. I don't know that I loved either of the performances from the, the two women in the film. Really? Uh, yeah. And I think I had the most issue with – um, Paula, the, the mom. Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought her character in particular seemed to be painted with more of a broader brush than these really detailed, intricate, deep male characters that he had. Really, see, I, I think, I think Paula has a really interesting evolution and one that is, um, it's, it's not saccharine in a way that you might get with like, oh, it's, it's a young boy who's pretty much raising himself with a crack addict mother. Um, it's. You know, and, and I knew I hadn't seen a trailer going into this, but I did. I had heard some interviews. And so I knew about, you know, the basic story. I'd heard an interview with Barry Jenkins, heard an interview with uh, Naomi Harris, actually talking about why she chose to to accept the role, that that sort of thing. And so I knew she was a, a crack addict. And so when she shows up in that that first uh, scene with her and she's in her, you know, sort of her scrubs and she's pretty much put together, I was actually a little taken aback, but um I kind of I love the way that evolution in her, you know, kind of breaking down and becoming more afflicted by um, by this addiction, but not in a not in a cartoony way, not in a not in a way that is looking down on her as a character at all, but as a um, there's there's something really um, really human, really sad about it. I'll, I'll say two things about her character progression. One. If if we would have been chatting during it, I would have sent you a that escalated quickly Ron Burgundy gif because I was like, wow, oh. that really. But the second thing I'll say is it's 
All the shots, and this is one of the things I really liked about the direction and the cinematography and the editing, all the shots during the little section, a -hmm. lot of them were from shot from below, sort of his point of view, even when it wasn't Mm -hmm. his point of view. But you felt like a little kid trying to understand what was going on. And little wouldn't have known, especially at that point in time, about his mother's struggles or what caused her to not fall off the wagon, but fall into that hole or anything like that. And we don't know either. We sort of just learn out, learn from the secondary things that happen that little would have seen. Well, and, and it's, it's clear in that there's a conversation that he has with Juan about, um, you sell drugs. My mom does drugs. You know, something, something to that effect in, in him kind of realizing, I think it, that may even be the the final scene in the, um, it is, um, in, in the chapter, um, that is, you know, sort of a, a bit of loss of innocence and a bit of, you know, it's because, I mean, I think you, to, to go back to, you know, the, the Paula character and her, her evolution, I think there is, um, a lot given to her in, um, you know, she, she doesn't, I don't think she just goes from being a concerned mother, which she seems to be when, you know, he was late coming home, um, in that, that first moment to, uh, you know, it, it takes a few steps before she's sort of rock bottom and the, uh, you know, there, there's a moment in the second chapter in the Chiron chapter where, um, she is, she's reached rock bottom and, and Chiron is clearly basically raising himself. And, uh, she sends him away and says, Hey, maybe you can't be here tonight. You got to go somewhere else. And it just seems like, oh, okay, she's turning tricks for money or something like that. Right. So naturally he goes to Teresa's house and this is where we find out that Juan is gone. And then the next morning he, uh, basically is coming home and she kind of, she comes up to him in, in the middle of this field and, uh, is at first very concerned. Where, where were you? Why did you, why did you leave? Where'd you go? And then it's this quick evolution and you, you actually, at least for me, I, I could completely feel sort of the, the manic nature of, of an addict of, she goes from being acting concerned to getting judgmental to getting really nasty. And then it suddenly like all starts to come together that they're basically they're fighting over uh, money that she knew Teresa gave him and she, she wants it and she needs it. And then, and then it all like sort of comes in and it's like, Oh, she, she just sent her son out to get her drug money. She, she is at that point where her addiction is so, uh, you know, has such a strong hold on her that she is, you know, sending the son who she, we know that she cares about him, but she's sending him out to, um, possibly, you know, be in danger, uh, because she knows that, uh, Teresa is going to take care of him and going to send him home with a little money. Yeah. You're a more astute film goer than I am, or maybe you knew more of what you should be looking for going in or something, because I didn't catch that until I talked to you after, but it made perfect sense. Cause she was like, uh, you were supposed to come back last night. You weren't supposed to stay out all night. She was looking for him to get back with money as soon as possible. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and I, I think that's the, that is the type of movie this is though. This is a, a movie that isn't going to hold your hand through a lot of the, you know, exposition moments. It's going to make you an active participant in paying attention and figuring out what's going on. And there's so much as in the subtlety and the nuance of the way characters interact, the silences, you know, it's, it's a pretty quiet movie. Um, and, and the way, the way it's all structured, even, even the editing of that scene, I, I love, um, the, there's this, and we didn't, you don't hear about this, you know, people don't talk about this much, but there, you've got non-diegetic, uh, visuals here actually where, 
um, she, I think it's maybe when, when he first comes up and she's yelling at him, but it's just a, a shot of her, maybe even kind of in slow-mo looking at him, her mouth isn't moving, but you hear her and it, and it kind of builds up this, um, this sort of, uh, mania to it, this sort of something's not quite right. And then, so as it escalates into uh full fledged, like desperation, uh, I, I, I felt it so much more. I think it was, um, again, great direction and great editing, but it was like an impressionistic view of what Little or Chiron, depending on who it was at the time. Uh, Chiron. Yeah, it, of what Chiron was was seeing or experiencing. Not what he was seeing, but what he was experiencing and how it felt like he was experiencing it. And I thought those were all super effective. Again, mm-hmm. I do not think this is a bad movie. I think this is a very strong movie. And I think it's going to be a very strong contender for Best Direction because it was just a across the board, what he chose to show, what he chose not to show, that was all really great. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me ask you this question, because I think it's something that's going to come up in the conversation once it, I mean, I think this is a shoe in for at least getting some nominations for Oscars. I don't, I mean, I think it's probably a long shot for actually winning just in like, it's a smaller film. I don't know. Um, you know, it hasn't made a ton of money. It's been making good money for the number of theaters it's in, but it's, it's a smaller film. Um, do you think so, it's making good money because it's making good money or because it's powered so many best cineplexes in fantasy movie league? <laughs> no, it's, I, it's making good money for the number. I mean, if you look at the, oh, I know it's, it sets some <laughs> records for per cinema, I believe. Yeah, exactly. That's, and that's or the, I wouldn't screen. be, I wouldn't be paying this much attention if we weren't doing the fantasy movie league, but it's been per cinema. It's been making really good money. Um, yeah, qu- quick aside, fantasy movie league has kept me more in touch with what's coming out than ever before and I, I really appreciate it because this movie is one that i would have saw in passing but it was up a few weeks and i was like i, got, I gotta see i gotta see moonlight interesting because this, this is a movie that i mean since since it premiered at uh uh telluride i've been really really excited to see it um and just just from like hearing you know hearing things about it. and here's here's the thing that i wanted to get to is i think there will be discussion of oh is this a response to oscar so white um I, I really don't think it's I, I think that is selling this movie short if um, if you try to pin it to that, because it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be like I said, it's not trying to be didactic. It's not trying to give you any sort of moral, um, you know, th- th- that if something something that was reactionary and obviously also like a movie can't generally get made and greenlit in that time to you know have a, a turnaround where suddenly um you know, we have people are saying already saying, oh, well, we have all these these more movies with with, uh, you know, black directors, black main characters um, out now. I, I think that's circumstantial. That's not really, you know, a response to this. But um, my my point being, um, I, I think this is bigger than and better than just slapping it as a like, oh, well, because Oscar so white happened. Now this movie's getting buzz. I think that. This movie will be a it will benefit from uh, Oscar So White having happened last year uh, to where if it was a bubble film, it would definitely be included. I don't think it's a reaction to that. I, I think maybe something like Fences where it was like, hey, let's adapt a play that already exists. And I think it was it began production in like earlier this year. That may be more more along those lines. But this is not one. And this feels like a very personal film, a film with a point. Uh, a, a film with a message that it wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, what what do you? I mean, what do you get out of this as 
as a message from from this film being like i i gather that you you appreciate it but don't necessarily uh relate to it or get on board with it um so what i mean what what do you read into it I think it's about the difficulties of being a gay black man in today's society, especially with all the expectations of masculinity. Mm-hmm. But the extent of which I know about that subject is now what I've been informed by this film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it's more difficult. It wasn't speaking to like a, a truth that I knew existed and was like, this is finally the movie to say it. Right. But, yeah, I get that. But that's a that's a lacking of my own experience. Uh Again, I'm not faulting the film for it, but it's it's hard for me to speak to any of those things and say, yeah, this is exactly right, or this isn't, or I, I don't feel qualified, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I get something a little, I guess, broader and more universal watching it in just the, I mean, and I think it goes back to what I was talking about earlier about there's not really an antagonist. There's not like every every character is approached with humanity, and even, you know, his crack addict mother is not just the oh, you know, she's, she's not an evil villain. She's not. And, and it's not, um, when, when they, you know, towards the end as he's in, in the third chapter black, which is, um, this identity that he's kind of taken for himself as he, uh, decides to, you know, become a drug dealer based on circumstances that, um, uh, that happened in, in high school, um, their relationship isn't just a, it's, it. she's not just the villain of, you know, like, oh, well, you didn't raise me and now I don't care about you. It's more, um, it's more dynamic than that. It's more personal than that. And it actually makes it, I think it makes the pain feel that much more visceral and real because you understand that he wants to, you know, he wants to love her. He wants to care for her. He wants to be there for her. But at the same time, there's sort of this, uh, tugging on both ends of all the times that you weren't there for me. I would love to be, he would love to be vengeful or be hateful. But as, as she says earlier in the film, uh, you're my only, and I'm your only They're They're really the only people, uh, each other has. And, and so it's, it's this delicate relationship and the fact that it's torn, um, for me was so much, it made it so much stronger and so much, uh, more tragic. And that's, that's the other thing. Like it, it, it's, this is a film that is so hopeful, even though it doesn't have any clear, happy conclusions. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't come to an, an ending where it wraps a bow at the end of anything, but you also don't feel like all hope is lost. I think this script did all the big things, right? Thematically, it had a lot of really interesting themes going and we can talk about that, uh, in a second. I didn't think the dialogue was as good as the uh, the plot and the themes worked into it. But there's so much of that is also like him listening, him sitting there being I mean, and, and Chiron is a very quiet personality. And so a lot of throughout you know each of these characters, a lot of their acting is actually just responding and um, which is amazing how much emotion you get from just the looks of each of these um, actors portraying uh, Chiron. And for me, it was all about his sort of inner, you know, you can just tell that the the gears are turning behind his head as, as his mother's talking to him and as he's taking it all in and as he's trying to reconcile, like, I know I should forgive her, but I still have all of this pent up, all these pent up feelings. And, and it's just, it's tough. 
it's it's a it's a continual struggle for him. The acting there was great because a, a lesser actor would have made me really dislike that scene, perhaps. But he mm-hmm. he sold all three of the actors who played Chiron did a great job of selling wheels are turning in his head and he's thinking and he's very uh, in he's internalizing all these things and just did great. Okay, Jake. Um, I think we've, we've been talking a lot about a lot about his relationship with the mother, a lot about, I, I think we need to talk about Kevin. Ha ha ha. Yeah. See what I did there? Yeah, I see. Um, Kevin being, being this friend um, that uh, appears periodically throughout um, each of these uh, each of these stories, and he has his own sort of little through line. I'm going to go ahead and say um, we've you know dipped a toe in spoilers here and there, but nothing too explicit. I'm going to go ahead and say spoilers from here on out um, for Moonlight. So the character of Kevin, first of all, I'd like to say that the transition from uh, high school Kevin into adult Kevin, um, I in in that middle scene. So knowing that we're going to we still have a third chapter and we're going to see probably see an adult version of this character. Um, I had, I had an idea in my head of who, um, of what actor should play adult Kevin. And, but I, I was not aware of, of who it was. And lo and behold, Andre Holland, the, the person in my head that I was envisioning actually shows up. And for those who may, may not be familiar with Andre Holland, um, all I really know him from is Steven Soderbergh's the Nick. Um, he plays, uh, plays a doctor in that, and that show, and he's he's wonderful. And there's there's something about you know the the two um, you know the 16 year old Kevin and adult Kevin um, the the two actors they don't necessarily look physically exactly alike, but there's something about sort of the way that they carry themselves that works so well. And you you totally buy in, or at least I totally bought in to that transition. There, it was amazing. See, the actor I was expecting to show up was Drake. <laughs> I thought I thought I thought Drake would have been an excellent adult Kevin, but maybe just seeing him in a high school thought had all those uh, Degrassi mm-hmm. uh, uh, wheels turning in my head. A show that I've watched once. Okay, um, but yeah, the the Kevin I I, I find this this uh, relationship with Kevin very very interesting, and the way that he's he's sort of I, I guess Kevin is the more um, self-aware version of Chiron in a lot of ways. They're both, um, you know, they're, they're both kids who know that they're gay from a young age, but Chiron is not really, he's, he's not really willing to accept it. And whereas, uh, Kevin is sort of, he seems to be fine with it. He seems to be, he seems to understand how to live in that world. Um, When, when did you know that Kevin was gay as well? I, I was thinking about it um, with the with that detention. I, I didn't I did not catch on to it whenever he comes up to him and he's like, hey, you got to protect yourself, you know, as as a little kid. Um, but when he's when he's telling the detention story, it felt like a little too much detail, like a little too much selling the what, did the that moment. happen or was he making that up? I, I couldn't get a read I, on that. It, it, honestly, it could be either. But 
I, what what I what I think it was is that it's him testing Chiron to say, hey, I you know now now we are adolescents now we're at you know we are mm-hmm. getting into a sexual peak, and so I'm going to test the waters and I think you're gay and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw this out there and say you know how to keep a secret and see how that plays out. And yeah, I, I that that's kind of when I when I read it, but I didn't know how much of it was me reading the characters mm-hmm. and how much of it was me saying, I know where this movie has to go. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think where it finally like uh, kind of gelled for me and in, in my notes, I'm like, oh, okay, this, this kid, which who I think at that time is just detention friend. Um, and in my notes, I, I think he's gay is, you know, as, as that scene starts where they share the blunt on the beach, there was just something to the way that, um, and, and Kevin in his own way is, I, I said he knows who he is, but he is, um, you know, putting on airs a bit as well as far as uh, his his masculinity, you know, saying, oh, well, I got this fat blunt. You want to smoke, smoke it with me? And then talking about um, talking about girls and, and all these things where um, it's I, I think he's more comfortable with himself, but he's not. He also doesn't fully, you know, understand um, exactly what the difference is, but he's found, he's found in Chiron someone who he can share it with. Right. And I, I, the one thing it did make me, uh, the, the film did really well, not the one thing, one of the things it did really well was that coded language that they both had to kind of use to dance around what they both wanted to do Mm -hmm. because neither of them could just come out and openly admit that they were into the other one. Right. With that, that risk of it. Of, uh, of, it was more than just like if, uh, he told some girl he liked her and he didn't, oh, well, this was like the, his whole life was at risk is sort of what it felt like. Right. Right. And and there's, I mean, so I think the transition from, uh, youth Kevin or, or teenage Kevin to adult Kevin, um, I, I think it's interesting where he went versus where. Um, where Chiron went because it feels like Chiron is very, his, his identity is very stunted and he's constantly, um, you know, it, it almost, it almost seems in, in high school, like, okay, he's getting it figured out. But then you realize in adulthood, um, very, very quickly, oh no, this is all just a front. And he's, you know, from the, uh, you know, the bulking up to be, you know, the peak masculine figure to, wearing the fronts to carrying the gun to being, you know, he's, he's trying even, even adopting the name of black, you know, he's, um, which clearly he he's done because he's got the, the vanity plate black being the name that Kevin gave him the nickname Kevin gave him. Um, I think on the beach, right. I, I think the experiences with Kevin as Chiron, uh, define the rest of his life as we saw it on screen. Uh, because mm-hmm. from the, the time that, uh, he gets betrayed and beaten up and, uh, putting his face down in the ice water, which we see happen uh, again as an adult. And then he's sticking mm-hmm. his head in the freezer. Uh, that kind of carries through. He adopts the name that Kevin gave him exclusively right. as his name. It, it really is the defining moment in this character's arc. Mm-hmm. And well, and, and that you, you bring up the ice water and the freezer. That's such a, that that's one of the little things that I love so much about this movie in the, the subtle way that it just sort of builds the world out for the audience to uh, kind of piece everything together. Um, because it's, while it's, it is very visually kind of arresting and stunning to, to see um, the, you know, transition from, 
high school Kevin, or I'm sorry, high school Chiron to adult Chiron, it actually, it's carrying information as well. It's not just there to be flashy. Um, and, and the information, honestly, like I didn't fully piece together until they're sitting down in that diner and they have that little conversation about, uh, I, I believe Kevin says something to Chiron about, you know, I, I thought you didn't drink alcohol. And he said, well, I can't really taste it. So I don't mess with it. Uh, which th- that was just like a, the most subtle, massive bomb he could have possibly thrown, which is to say, when you beat me up, when you threw those three punches at my face, you altered my life forever. I now can no longer taste. I, I also, and you know, he's not communicating this entirely, but he's communicating it to us. I also, you know, have this chronic pain that I am constantly trying to soothe, putting my face in ice. Um, Every day. I, I didn't know it, if it was that or if it was more like he not the chronic pain physically, but more he was putting his internal self his, on ice. His emotions on ice. And, and maybe I mean maybe it's both, but um that that's sort of where I uh where I came to to read it is um, you know, this this subtle bombshell of um you know, kind of how, and, and that's the, once again, to go back to, you know, sort of what I was saying about the relationship with the mother in a different movie, the, the forgiveness wouldn't be there or the, um, it, it would have been, it would have been this adversarial, uh, arrangement. Then it would have been, they went from being friends to, to Kevin betrayed him. And it's not that it's, it's way more delicate and way more complex. And, um, I, I, I don't know. It's just, I, I love the the gray areas throughout this this movie and the way that it it just feels so much more human than the typical characters you get on screen. Yeah, really. Especially, I know we haven't talked about him for a while, but I thought Juan felt especially human. He had such a mm. such a diverse set of things he did in his very short time in the movie, and it was so impactful. The only thing I didn't think maybe ran rang true with me. Uh, Juan had a very progressive view uh, on the F word when asked by Little um, for for what was, I guess, an early 90s, probably at the time. I, I don't really know. It wasn't I, dated. I don't know. And I, I actually I love the way this is just a sidebar. I love the way this film doesn't really concern itself with time period at all. Like it doesn't oh, it doesn't try great. to say this is this is the 80s this is the 90s. This is the whenever it just kind of allows it to be and the, I, the only it, thing that dates any of it is is black smartphone that was yeah, the only but even, thing I could but even find. that it's they they've made it they made it a generic sort of screen to the point that it's not identifiably like oh that's that's an iphone from with ios 7 or whatever on it no i'm not um, saying that but that's the only reason i know the whole thing didn't take place in the 90s right the right, 80s right. and 90s so I, if i'm assuming that's today uh, that was just a very progressive attitude for anybody to have answering, but he was answering a question for, you know, I guess probably about an eight year old at the time. Well, and, uh, and he was, I, I mean, I, I think had that been the first time that it was brought up to that we, we saw the character of Juan addressing uh, the homosexuality. I think it, it may have felt a little more ham fisted, but literally the first, the first time we meet him, he is defending this young, skinny, scared gay kid 
um, and and taking him under his wing. I mean, that's the whole thing that starts that relationship in the first place. Is and the mom sees, in the parking lot says, "How are you going to explain to him why everybody beats him up?" Yeah, exactly. And, and that so he that was, he was thinking about it. It it wasn't completely out of the blue that he answered that question that way. Yeah, and and, and I think I think he knew the question was coming. He like he knew that that day was coming at some point, and um, so I you know I don't I don't think it was. PC. I don't think it was trying to be, you know, like, oh, in a perfect world, this is the response. To me, it felt more like, you know, that the, there was the depth to the Juan character, even as as little time as he gets on screen that, that you know, I, I totally bought into. And, and look at his impact. He, he, that's what Chiron was missing in the middle. And in the third act, that's what Black was striving to be. He was trying mm. to be Juan. Oh, he had the absolutely. the crown on the dashboard, mm-hmm. the same type of car. It worked out to kind of look, you know, mm-hmm. vaguely the same way. That's that's what he was doing the same job and everything. That was his father figure who was missing. It was it was his role model who, you know, he was he was trying to he was the best male figure that he had had, even if he was a drug dealer. And so he was trying to imitate him. I mean, I love I I love the I want to get into the music a little bit. And maybe maybe this is where we we go out. Um, But there's that that song that he's playing when he kind of rolls up in the in the car. Um, It's like a chopped and screwed version of this song, Classic Man, which is kind of a douchey song um, altogether. But it I feel like it informs so much about who Chiron is trying to be like he he feels like, okay, I am. I am a class. I'm, I'm trying to be the masculine man, the, the ultimate masculine man. And because I'm now in Atlanta, I have to listen to this chopped and screwed version. Like there's, there's just so much little detail. That's not, not spelled out at all, not broadcasting itself at all, but just living in the moment. Also, I liked in that scene that you're talking about when black is in the car and his, I don't know if it's his, uh, lackey or whatever you want to call it, gets in the car with him. And it's like, where's the honey's at? And he's like, I don't know. You tell me. It showed how Black had learned to mm-hmm. interact with the world to cover up the things he wanted to cover up about himself. Yeah. But then but then you get the sort of almost mirroring moment after the diner when Kevin gets in the car. <laughs> what's, you, what's you looking at me like that for? Come on, man. Come on. You just drove down here. Yeah. Like you was just, you was just on one, and you hit the highway. Yeah. So where you gonna stay tonight, man? There's so much space. He can barely speak. He can barely find the words to say what he's been thinking about, probably, you know, for the past decade. And he immediately regresses from this, like, not talkative, but he he learned to be sort of like Juan and Mm -hmm. was telling his his lackey, you know, you got to watch out with people joking around with you on the street where – Chiron would do nothing like that. And he goes home and he's instantly slumped shoulders, gripping the fork like a, you know, 
like somebody holding a, yeah. a shovel or something to eat. He's instantly, yeah. which by the way, credit to direction, the the director did a great job of getting all of these actors on the same page as far as being the same person. Well, and, and, but also think about how many, like how much connection there is to conversations around a dinner table or around eating food. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's this, you know, subtle little through line that, I mean, the very first time that he really sits with Juan, he's Juan is feeding him lunch and then soon after dinner. And many of the, uh, run-ins with Teresa are just sitting at a dinner table. Um, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot that happens and in the cafeteria. Yeah. A lot happens in the cafe in, in, at the dinner table. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's a common theme. The note that I want to go out on is um, I, and, and this is kind of encompasses everything that I love about this, this film. Um, the fact that the, the hello stranger song, sort of the, um, the song that gets black to come visit Kevin he, you know, he said, I heard the song on the jukebox and it reminded me of you. Mm-hmm. I feel like in, in a different movie, in a more generic sort of movie, that's the moment where we fade to black, cut to black, credits roll. And everything's, everything's on a happy up note and we just believe everything's worked out and it's all great. And we, we don't get it. You know, we get this abrupt cut to the ringing bell of the diner door. And then they go out and they have that, that weird, awkward, silent moment in, in mm-hmm. the car that we just discussed where, you know, he ends up black, doesn't even know what to do. So he just ends up cranking up the, uh, cranking up the music at the very end. And, and that, that's what I appreciate about this is it, it feels honest and it feels real. It's not trying to sugarcoat anything. It's not trying to say, well, everything's going to be rosy. And, but I, I also don't think it doesn't end on a sour note. It ends on a hopeful note, but hopeful knowing that it's still an uphill battle and probably will be for, you know, the rest of his existence. Yeah, I, 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 in this film definitely left a question about what happens next. Does he go back to Atlanta? Does he stay? Do they, there's a lot of stuff that's still up in the air on that. And I'm not saying it didn't do a good job telling the story it wanted to tell, uh, because I think it did. But I still have questions about it, and that's not always a bad thing. Yeah. Spoilers are done. Spoilers are done. Turns out Rosebud was only a sled. Kylo Ren's dad is totally dead. Noah Cross was Mulray's baby daddy. And also her regular dad. Spoilers are done. We're finished. Spoilers are done. So, Chris, when the Midnight Warriors sit down to watch Moonlight and they want to grab a nice alcoholic beverage, provided they can taste them, uh, what, what do you suggest they grab? My recommendation this week is Oblivion Sour Red by Wicked Weed Brewing Company in Asheville, North Carolina. And this is a uh, this is a sour, which you know how much I love sours. Um, this is aged with blackberries and dates in red wine barrels for eight to ten months. And it's it's really Really fantastic. First of all, it's it's a beer aged in red wine barrels. Yeah, I mean, it, barrel aging is is a pretty common thing in uh, in craft brewing. Um, there's there's several. I mean, Prairie here in Tulsa or in in Krebs, I suppose, uh, does a lot of barrel aging in um, everything from just oak barrels to whiskey barrels to tequila barrels. Um, a lot a lot of stuff. 
Um, but it, it, it kind of adds a little bit of a little bit of a distinct flavor to it. So it, it does a few things for this beer. One, it makes it generally sours are fairly low ABV. Um, this one is it's not super high, but it's over 8%. Um, and so that's, that's pretty high for a sour. That's probably partially coming from soaking up a bit from that red wine, um, in, in, in the barrels in, in the aging process. Um, the other thing that, that the aging does is it gives it a really complex flavor. It's, um, it's rich and the flavor sort of evolves on the palate. Um, it, it, and, but as it's evolving, every note sort of fits perfectly from one to the next, which is sort of symbolically why I picked it for this film. Is it just, uh, it it just flows so well. And it starts with this really, really tart note up front, um, you know, being, it is a sour. And then at the very end, particularly as you're getting towards the end of it, it actually has a bit of a dry red wine, um, flavor to the palate where that's, you know, it's not, it's not overpowering, but you, you can definitely feel it and taste it. Um, and it's just a really nice evolution. I, I would have guessed that they made a sour red beer by aging it in Warhead packets, Cherry <laughs> Warhead packets. But maybe I'm just new to the whole craft brewing thing. <laughs> well, uh, I I think, and this is, I, I should also say, sour beers are the one type of beer that I can get my wife to drink. She had a little sip of it uh, when I had it the other night, and she approved. So um, there, there's also that. So uh, when you're watching Moonlight, I suggest... You enjoy it with a Oblivion Sour Red from Wicked Weed Brewing. Moonlight is currently playing at Art House Theaters nationwide. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break to discuss the final recap of the fall 2016 season of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. The world is dark, be my light I'm a bright dark Welcome to the end of season fantasy movie roundup and awards ceremony. Or S-Mark, for short. Sure. I'll be your master of ceremonies for the event, and I will not be opening up with a song and dance number or catchy bit of stand-up. Sorry to get your hopes up, but I don't have those cool Hugh Jackman moves. 
But this is radio, so feel free to use your imagination as you see fit. Jake, I like to think of our show as Radio in Technicolor. I like that. You're going to put that as our tagline? Yeah. Yeah. First, in case you've been skipping out on our recaps and you're confused, I want to remind you that this is not a game where we pick the best fantasy movies. No, this is more like a fantasy sports game, where each player gets an eight-screen Cineplex and $1,000 per week to show the most profitable real-world movies and beat the other competitors. The real-world box office totals are the only thing that counts. If you're not already playing along with us, check out WSAMPod.com slash Fantasy Movie League, or find the link in the episode show notes to join us for the upcoming 13-week awards season. We'll be starting over from $0, and this is a great time to join us. If you are playing, you'll know by now how seriously we take this sport around these parts. Suddenly, instead of just ignoring the release of a movie like Max Steel, you're looking up comps, you're studying screen counts, and you're trolling around on Pro Box Office and Box Office Mojo hoping for predictions to justify putting it in your lineup six or seven times. That, Which is a mistake. You're not going to find one of those. Um, I, I might speak for myself, but I feel like I know a lot more about the weekly openings than ever before. How about you, Chris? I definitely pay much more attention to A, what's coming out, and B, what things make. Um, it doesn't necessarily like it's not changing what I'm seeing uh, per se, but it, it has, I've noticed it's even popping up in conversation where, you know, over Thanksgiving break, I was talking with somebody about, I don't even remember what movie, but uh, I spouted off. Oh yeah. Well, you know, last week it made 12.4 million or something. And I was like, Oh, they, they don't care about that. That's dumb. They're not in the league. That's funny. It does make me when I'm talking to people, I'm like, uh, you're going to see a movie this weekend? What you going to see? <laughs> why, why are you interested in seeing that? Just trying to get like a, a finger on the pulse of what advertisements are people seeing? How, how are, what are they thinking is coming up that they're really excited for? You just don't want to get sideswiped by another Tyler Perry's Med- Boo Medea Med- Christmas again, or Halloween again, do you? I, I wish it was Boo a Medea Christmas. I want a scary Tyler Perry <laughs> Christmas movie. <laughs> so before we get into awards, let's recap how week 13 went down in our league. Going into the week, Film School Dropout set on top of our league, while School of Rock was within striking distance of winning the fall season. This week was a complete crapshoot from day one. As we are nearing the dreaded award season, small movies like Moonlight, Loving, or Rules Don't Apply could make or break your Cineplex. Uh, This week, they would have broke your Cineplex. Anyway, like a fool, I abandoned all my numbers calculations, and I I picked from my heart. I knew the only way I could catch up anyway was with a, a mad upset. So I went with my gut and threw six Hacksaw Ridges up with Edge of 17 and Fantastic Beasts. This was not and never is a successful strategy. Nope. Stick to the numbers. Film School Dropout played three screens of Doctor Strange and five screens of Arrival. School of Rock went with Fantastic Beasts, Arrival, and six Almost Christmases. Probably based on some strong predictions from some box office prognosticators, which I saw and I ignored. I tweeted out the exact lineup that he played. Go figure. Fully ignored it and picked a worse Cineplex. Uh, so when estimates came out on Saturday morning, it became pretty clear that film school dropout was going to run away with the title. But then an almost Christmas miracle on Saturday morning, school of rock jumped ahead, not only for the week, but for the season, almost Christmas was magically putting $2 million up more than expected. Plus the $2 million best performer bonus that it stole from arrival, but it was only an almost, almost Christmas miracle. 
or an almost Christmas, almost miracle? The studio apparently misreported its five-day Thanksgiving weekend estimates for its three-day estimates that Fantasy Movie League uses. So when the dust settled on Monday morning, the title of Grand Poobah of the Midnight Warrior Clan went to film school dropout. So congratulations, Lacey, and we all hope to put up more of a fight next season. I'm I'm not holding out a chance that I'm going to put up more of a fight. She actually, I had a, a one week lead on her in this uh, in this season, and she still beat me for overall gross. So I don't stand a fighting chance. Right, uh, and I should note we only counted week three to week thirteen in this season. We did our own scoring in a spreadsheet because that's when we invited everybody in. But what Chris is talking about is he played week two, and she still beat him one yeah. week short. Yeah. So kind of like with one hand tied behind her back. So we're very afraid of Lacey for next season because apparently she's a savant when it comes to Fantasy Movie League. And uh, and Phil as well. He, he pointed out to, to me that the first week of the season, he left a couple screens blank because he didn't understand how it worked. And since then, he has just been up against Lacey every single week. I've called School of Rock and Film School Dropout more times than anybody else in this podcast. I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of tired of hearing their names, and I actually kind of hope they change them for next season. Uh, everyone should, because uh, interesting and funny team names is a key part of fantasy sports. And with that in mind, it's now time for Chris and I to hand out the new, but immediately coveted, Golden Warrior Awards. Chris, do you want to describe what our trophy looks like? Uh, well, it's uh, it's tall. It's carrying a sword. It's it's actually quite heavy in the hand, um, and it's bald like an Oscar, uh, but with a beautiful mustache. <laughs> See, uh, that's interesting because I I thought the award was going to be just a, like a monolith from two thousand one, a space odyssey, just just one you could fit in your hand. Simple, elegant. And affordable for us to make. <laughs> no, 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 not not very affordable. I thought we were going to make them out of uh, unobtainium. Oh, uh, I I may not have gotten the memo on that one. The memo may have been unobtainable. Uh, uh-huh. Well, I mean, you got any other ideas for like if if we needed to make an affordable uh, ward, what we could make it out of? Uh, yeah. What if we took like a old VHS tape and we glued it on top of a planter's nuts can and we spray painted the whole thing gold? Oh man, that that sounds awful. Uh... Let's not do that. Let's just not make trophies. Okay, uh, good, because I hope we didn't get anybody's hopes up. Our award is not a trophy. No, it's way better than that. You get your name read on our podcast and a bit of bragging rights and internet fame. What could be better than that? Yeah, feel free to use this uh, in your when you're trying to get that uh, talent agent. Feel free to use this as a, a reference of, you know, getting your name out there. I would actually go with this instead of a headshot, because really <laughs> it's it's more important. <laughs> okay, now our first award of the evening is the Glengarry Glenn Ross ABC Award for most wins. Remember your ABCs. Always best Cineplexes. At least that's what I think the Alec Baldwin line was. Yeah, something like that. It's been a while since I saw it. Uh, anyway, some would say that winning the most weeks is what should determine the winner. I would have claimed that very loudly had I won the most weeks. But any listener to the podcast should be able to guess who got this award. It is, of course, Film School Dropout, who now has won four weeks, including winning or tying the last three weeks. Also, for the last two weeks, she has scored a perfect Cineplex, putting her tied number one overall out of all Cineplexes. So congratulations, Lacey. You've earned a coffee, because coffee is her closers, and also best Cineplexes. 
I don't know that I watched the right version of that movie. Did you watch some weird like cut up for like a youth group movie? Like they, they took out <laughs> all the foul language and then actually like changed up some of the other the rest of the script just because all the F words just became fantasy movie league. You just said that every time. <laughs> uh, and Lacey, you may want to stay up here near the podium as you're going to be making a, a few trips up here. This will not be your only award. Spoilers. Uh, up next is the Teo Kretschmar Shortoff Memorial Award for Excellence in Cineplex Monikers. This was a really tough battle with lots of runner-ups. Jake, did you have any favorite names for this batch of Cineplexes this season? Uh, can I give the award to the name for this award? Man, that is excellent. <laughs> uh, if I had to, if I had to pick my runner-up for this one, it's it's no questions asked. Nick Cage's Movie House and Eatery. I, I want a restaurant that I can go to where I can also be scared of the crazy stuff that can happen. <laughs> it's. Do you think this place in like I imagine it's always playing double features, but then I I feel like also it's probably has a huge huge menu like like. Uh, the size of a uh, of a cheesecake factory menu, but only like one in every fifteen things on the menu is good. But when it's good, it's really good. No, you have to order off the secret menu, which is where you put lemon juice on the back of it, and a map appears to another place that you can order. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that a national treasure joke? Possibly, uh, but it, it, I found it inside of a Da Vinci Code DVD case, so it could have been the Da Vinci Code. I'm told they're a lot alike. <laughs> Tom Hanks, actually, in that second one, had some pretty uh, Nick Cagey hair going on, so maybe. Haven't seen any of them. Uh, Chris, what, what was your runner-up? Uh, my runner-up, which honestly, if, if I was giving out the prize, I would probably just give it to him, but it's got to go to Calvin Klein's Life Preserver Emporium, a wonderfully well-crafted name. Um, this Cineplex came on uh, a little late in the game and had had a little trouble a couple weeks, kind of forgot to, to fill out, uh, you know, here and there uh, a few weeks in a row, but all is forgiven because that name is amazing. Yes, but the Golden Warrior... For best name goes to former guest Drew Allen with Bury Me With My Movies. <laughs> Bury Me With My Movies, of course, a line from the upcoming cinematic adaptation of the Super Nintendo game Sunset Riders, <laughs> don't, starring Alden Ehrenreich and Donald Glover. Don't get my hopes up. That would be amazing. Oh, God, it would be fantastic. <laughs> and in, in case you're wondering, the uh, listeners, the actual line is "bury me with my money," which is maybe the greatest death line of all time. Absolutely, bury me with my money. We we should have named this podcast "Bury Me with My Movies." <laughs> we, man, I like that. Bury me with my movies. Radio in Technicolor. <laughs> Okay, well, next up is the Occam's Razor Award. This award is given out to the person with the simplest cineplex of the season. We had plenty of people with seven screens of a movie this season, some even winning their week. But only one person was brave enough to push all chips in and bet on red. In week 11, eight screens of Hacksaw Ridge earned a fifth place finish in our league. So the Golden Warrior for simplest cineplex goes to No Country for Old Movies. Congratulations. But remember... Variety is a spice of life. Um, let's let's not speak too soon about that, Chris. The next award is the Diversify Your Bonds Award. What, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you insinuating? Uh, uh, 
why don't, why don't you pay attention and listen? This is the best performing Cineplex featuring the most different movies. Uh, in week five, one person played Girl on a Train, Miss Peregrine, Storks, Sully, Mastermind, Snowden, and two screens of Don't Breathe. <laughs> Do you want to guess who was crazy enough to pick this many different movies? Uh, y- you shouldn't have to think too long, Chris, because it was you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Congratulations to tell Mr. Royal this is the pagoda. Thanks. Uh, yeah. If, yeah. If you're reading these off and I, I was like, oh, who's who's that dummy who who had obviously no idea what they were doing? Apparently it was me. I don't know what I was doing. Yeah. When I was reading them, it even felt like more like I had to go back and double count and make sure I didn't list too many movies. No, you really had all of those. In my defense, Jake, I think all of those movies, with maybe the exception of Mastermind, were in a perfect cineplex one week they just didn't all collectively make a perfect cineplex i think that's true uh also when you're first starting out of this game you think oh maybe i should pick a whole lot of stuff I, if i was running a movie movie place i want to show a lot of different movies yeah diversity diversity generally uh something you want a little bit of not a lot and and, and back to the occam's razor um correct me if i'm wrong but the only cineplex that i know of that ever won with all one movie was deadpool and we all know that Deadpool was an anomaly. Yes, Deadpool crushed all expectations, and it was just eight screens of Deadpool. I don't even think it came close to using all the money. It just did that well. So, to No Country for Old Movies, don't over-diversify either, because that's bad too. All right, Jake, do you want to rattle off at least a few awards a little quicker? Uh, maybe do a quick blow-through? Uh, we can do Biggest Blowout, which goes to Film School Dropout. In week 13, she scored $113 million, and the second place only had $92 million. So that's like a $21 million blowout, which is pretty unheard of in our league. Pretty impressive, although not surprising because it was film school dropout. Um, up next, we've got Sneakiest Win, which is the lowest total for a Cineplex that actually won the week. And this goes to Bury Me With My Movies with only $56 million in week seven. And that's, you know, that's not, you know, not too high, but it wasn't a great week at the Cineplex in general. So it was enough to uh, enough to snag first place. Um, I also had an award for most improved player. And for this one, I kind of made about six different spreadsheets to kind of figure out who improved the most. And it was tough going, but I ended up deciding to give the award to scruffy looking nerf herder started out with a $0 Cineplex the first week and has only been uphill since then in placement. So congratulations. Yeah. Very good job. Doing better. Look forward to see what you got next season. I, you know, I think scruffy looking nerf herder, I believe, uh, signed up, joined the league and then forgot to fill in any movies his first week. So he, everything thousand dollars kept it in his pocket. <laughs> I think that's, I how, think that that's works. how that works. I don't think that's how that works. I've been writing a thousand dollar PayPal every 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 week to <laughs> fantasy movie league. I don't know what you guys are doing. <laughs> he's he's actually betting. He's hedging and betting against the uh, the industry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Finally, the big award, the most valuable projectionist award. Our MVP is given to the Cineplex owner, who performs best over the course of the season. Each week, as we go to set our lineups... Jake, do we really have to do this? I mean, let's just give the damn award to Film School Dropout already. Thank God. Sometimes there's no mystery left. Just roll your shopping cart up here and pick up all these imaginary internet points at once, Lacey. This season, you were better than all of us. 
Not even continuous strong performances from School of Rock could keep you off of our equivalent of the Iron Throne. So we congratulate you, but next season we are all going to try our damnedest to be king of The War Starts at Midnight Hill. Yeah, and next season is going to be pretty hard too because it's award season. I mean, I I don't know how you felt about uh, the last season of The Fall League, Jake, but I, I had no idea what to pick and I feel like it's only going to get broader from here because you mean the last couple weeks yeah because well no the the week before i got a perfect cineplex i knew exactly what to pick come on man um but then the last week i decided to go with like six uh uh what's what's the movie with miles teller and he's a boxer i don't know i thought like drunk uncle bleed for this i thought drunk uncle was going to take his entire family to see it over thanksgiving i guess i don't know what happened um there's there's nothing saying that bleed for this couldn't have came out did five million dollars and won this week yeah. I mean, they're not in a lot of screens. Yeah. But who knows if they're gonna go off for ten thousand dollars per screen. I, I figured I, mean, I figured family gets together, you you get somebody who's like, Oh man, it's another boxing movie. I have seen them all, I gotta see this one and takes the entire family. That's what I was banking on, and that didn't happen. What what about something like uh Manchester over the sea? Is that what it is? Manchester by the sea. It could be over the sea. Depends on where you're standing. <laughs> uh that one could do well. People like Casey Affleck. Yeah, it could do well. The thing about Manchester by the Sea for me is it seems like the type of exactly the type of movie that you think of when you think of Oscar Bait. Like it looks pretty. I'm sure the acting's great, but I wonder how many people who see that movie are going to remember it in a year. Um it's it feels and and I haven't seen it, so I shouldn't judge, but it feels like that type of movie to me. Um, and it's, uh, it's making okay money right now. It looks like, but that's the thing that's going to be interesting about this, this next season, the Oscar or the award season is, uh, there are going to be things that are affected by sort of the buzz in, in the Oscar races. And so especially getting up to those last few weeks leading up to the Oscars, um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. You know, I'll be curious to see if a lot of times theaters, when things are nominating, may even bring older movies back. Um, I'll be curious to see if any of that ends up on the, uh, you know, available in the cineplexes or not. But, uh, yeah, I, this just means like more confounding options, uh, and, and variables to, to go with. I feel I'm going to make a bold prediction when star Wars rogue one comes out, mm-hmm. it's going to be top load your cineplex with that and then pick which award movie that you think is going to make the most money. Yeah. So one of those is just going to be the dark horse that just, just rides all the way. But I bet there's going to be about five options to pick from, and we're not going to have a clue what one to go with. Yeah. Five, five might be a little big. I bet, I bet there's three to four just because I, I feel like one of those, one or two of those is going to be, you got to load up and then leave a screen or two empty. If you want to actually go with that. Yeah. What, what also could happen is that's going to be about the right time that, Hacksaw Ridge could be doing the Sully, that little Sully dance that it mm-hmm, came back and mm-hmm. did, getting in best Cineplexes floating, a couple floating weeks Floating right above the water there. Yeah. It's just in enough Cineplexes, and it's, I think Cheap it's going to have legs. No, I, I do too. I mean, I think I think Hacksaw Ridge, it came out at the perfect time to sustain for a while. I mean, the thing of Hacksaw Ridge, it kind of reminds me of, I went and saw over Christmas break several years ago, probably like three years ago, um, the uh, Shia LaBeouf um, David Ayer's uh, Fury, Shia LaBeouf and David Ayer, oh, okay. the, the Brad Pitt, etc. Um, you know the the tank battalion in World War II, and that movie had been out for at least a month and a half, maybe two months, and it was like it was a Friday night, but it had been out for a while, and there was a ton of new stuff, and it was the entire theater was sold out. 
I think it's going to be that type of movie that like people just continue to get to it because it's the type of movie that draws, I think will draw people who generally don't go to the movies. And so I saw American Sniper way late. It might've been after New Year's that year when I saw it mm -hmm. and it still had a big crowd and people clapped at the end. And this was a movie that had been out for weeks. Yeah. We reviewed it in like late January, early February uh, last year. And it was still, it was still doing pretty well. Yeah. And I, I think this has a lot of the same markings and it could get some nominations. Yeah, no, I, I think it's possible. I don't know. Like, it'll be interesting to see how Hollywood treats Mel Gibson, obviously. Um, we'll see. There's, I mean, there's, and there's still a few things that I'm looking forward to, most notably La La Land, which unfortunately oh, I'm not, I'm yeah. not sure we're going to be able to talk about here on the show because it opens in limited release and then it opens wide, which I don't think we're going to get it in Louisiana or in or Baton Rouge or Tulsa, you know, for limited release. Then it opens wide against Rogue One. So we'll see yeah. if we if we get to talk about it. this is I mean, this movie looks fantastic. Um I'm I'm sure it'll be part of a best cineplex at some point, but probably not probably not on, on December sixteenth. If we can fit it in, uh I'll drive to a real city, aka New Orleans, <laughs> and uh and see it. But I don't know where you're gonna have to go. Dallas. Dallas. You're not gonna But do but that. that's the thing is I don't even know if like New Orleans and Dallas are gonna get it in limited. They might <sighs> I, I, a lot of times that's only, you know, New York, LA, Chicago. Etc. Well, we'll see what happens. I do want to, I would love to talk about it at some point. Um, so maybe, maybe it's something that we just have to do as a short rounds. Um, I, I was excited because I said it's going to come out because I saw a trailer for it before a movie. It was Moonlight mm -hmm. and it made a lot of sense. And that in no way means we're getting it soon or ever. So yeah, this, this award season, uh, here's, here's the thing. We are starting over a new. So if you've been holding off, if you've thought, well, this kind of sounds fun, but they're in the middle of it. I don't want to join in the middle. This is the time to join. Like you can, you can go to WSAMPod.com slash fantasy movie league. Um, I've got sort of laid out exactly what the league's about, how you can join um, all of that information there, go there or find the link in the show notes and um, join us. This is going to run from December 2nd up through Oscar night. So this is legitimately the award season season. Um, I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. And when we do our award season FML award episode, I plan on giving out the Henry Rowan Gardner Memorial rookie of the year award Memorial to whoever joins this season and has the best season long total. Uh, Jake Henry Rowan Gardner Memorial award. Did he die at the end of that movie? Did you, did he, you see very, uh, I think he re-slipped on a baseball and lost his ability to throw and was never heard from again. Okay. I don't remember it. It's been 15 years. It's still a memorial. It's a memorial. Okay. Fair enough. Um, all awards named after people living are, or dead are memorial awards. It's in memory of them. You can remember people who are alive. That's fair. Why, I guess that's why fair. Why are you it's grilling just, me, Chris? It's, it's just traditionally, I believe they go to dead people or, you know, whatever. Okay. Uh, the Henry Rowan Gardner Living Memorial Award. <laughs> yes, that has to be the title. Please make that the title. In living memory of Henry <laughs> Rowan Gardner, who lives forever in our hearts and also still on Earth. Okay, Jake. So if people are curious about the Fantasy Movie League and, and they get into it, um, where can they you know, get a little more insight, a little more uh, advice, research, uh, sometimes bad advice? Oh, it, if they want bad advice... They can come to me. If you want really good advice, go to FML Nerd. He he does the best roundups 
and has a lineup calculator and all those things. But if you want our unique spin and also roundups of our FML weeks when we're not doing podcasts, you should catch my weekly recaps and predictions each Wednesday on the War Starts at Midnight blog. And if you've got a hot take on the next Perfect Cineplex, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAMPod. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. Wouldn't it be nice if we could wake up in the morning when the day is new? Jake, it's really rad recommendation time once again. What do you have for the Midnight Warriors this time? Uh, I have a new entry in my weekly I Can't Pronounce Foreign Names se- uh, series. Uh-huh. Uh, this one is from director Pavel Paulikowski. How's that? <laughs> Nailed it. Is that right? Dead on uh, accurate? Sure, man. Sure, <laughs> man. Uh, this is tw- uh, 2013's Ida. Oh, uh, is this great. A- Ida is really good. I, I felt like it was similar to Moonlight in that it was a very personal, very understated story about one character mm-hmm. uh, and their her her growth in finding who she was and and deciding what she wanted to be in her life. And it's not that it directly reminded me a lot about Moonlight, but I wanted to find something that kind of fit, not thematically, but. Uh, kind of like spiritually with Moonlight. And I thought Ida right. was a good fit. And I, I, I'm sure a lot of her, our listeners have seen it as for a long time was available on Netflix. Uh, but I, I just, did it win Best Foreign? I believe, yeah, it feature? did. And yeah, I believe this was the uh, the director who like talked down the, uh, do you remember this? Talked down the, uh, he was getting played off and- he just, oh, like, just power with, it through with, it with kindness. Well, with kindness was just like, come on, guys, let me let me finish. And yeah, uh, got through it. And they, they actually stopped and he completed his uh, he completed his speech. That was a great little moment. Yeah. the and, and the performances in this were great from a bunch of actresses whose names I will not even butcher. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also a really beautiful. I mean, we didn't talk too much about the visuals of Moonlight. Moonlight is gorgeous. This is a really good pick in that regard as well. This is a beautiful shot in stark black and white. That's just like beautiful and amazing. Um, I, I think they go hand in hand in in that manner as well. No, it it really it really did look great. 
uh, and and I suggest if if you liked Moonlight and you like those type of films, definitely go and find Ida. It's available on Hulu, Yahoo Screen, uh, <laughs> Fandor, and you can rent it anywhere, but probably not at a Hollywood video. Probably not. Uh, War Starts at Midnight brought to you by Hollywood, Hollywood Video. video. Uh, I, I believe it's actually <laughs> Yahoo View now. They've rebranded from screen to view, and now the kids are flocking. Yeah, great. Uh, I hope uh, – d- doesn't Verizon or somebody own this now? I, I think so. I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, uh, j- probably find it on Hulu. Yeah, find, find it on Hulu. It's there. If you haven't canceled it because you're switching over to – Right, right. But it's – yeah, it's it's gorgeous. It's uh, – it's delicate. It's this is a really good, a really good pick to pair with Moonlight. Actually, great job. All right, Chris, what what did what did you pick? Um, I I think my my pick's pretty good as well. I went with the two thousand one Alfonso Cuarón film Itumama Tambien, um, which uh, okay is it's currently available to stream on Hulu and Netflix. I haven't seen it. Is it a war crime? I think it is a war crime. I really, absolutely, certainly do. I feel like I say that every time, but yes. Definitely. It's a, and, and here's, here's the thing I, I will, I will say the version on Hulu and Netflix is the rated R version, um, which was, I believe only cut down for American audiences for the American theater. Um, the unrated version is the sort of full original version of this film, um, which is available on criterion collection, a beautiful criterion Blu-ray. I picked it up at the most recent, uh, Barnes and Noble sale. And it's, here's, here's the thing. It, it, it is a movie. It, I think it pairs really nicely with Moonlight because it's a movie about, um, relationships and, um, you know, trying to, trying to reconcile, um, you know, relationships and differences and, uh, find the humanity in, in all of that. Um, and it's, it, it's a road trip film. It's, it's about basically these, these two, uh, friends, uh, played by Gael Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna. Um, they kind of con their um, Diego Luna's cousin's wife into coming on this road trip with them. And um, so it's it's sort of a road comedy, but a very it, it, it has this weird balance where on the one hand, it's very funny. It's it has some really great witty dialogue. I think even Caron and the uh, uh, the writer said that they I believe we're trying to make a Lubitsch style um, film of sorts with this, which is, you know, sort of screwball comedy. And it, it has some of that, but it also has this weight and this um, attention to the world around it. That uh, is just, I think something that is delicate and something you don't get very often in, uh, in this type of film. And I, I think Corone balances it well. And the performances are, are amazing. And, um, it's really, it's touching, even though, you know, it is, it is a little bittersweet, um, but it still has hope in it as well. And so that's why I, I really do. I think this pairs extremely well, extraordinarily well with Moonlight. Um, that's Itumama Tambien available on Hulu and Netflix and the rated R version also available on a beautiful Criterion Blu-ray. Um, I recommend you check it out that way. All right. I guess I'll, uh, add it to my war crimes list. Do it, man. Do it. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, fantasy movie league recaps, and more. Or say hello on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSANpod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it in iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. 
On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. The Spoiler Alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash The Taylor Machine. And shout out to the enigmatic Eleanor Seabird for the featured music on this week's show. Join us in another fortnight for a double feature starring Warren Beatty of Young and Old. We'll have a review of his latest directorial effort, Rules Don't Apply, starring Alden Ehrenreich, and a war crimes review of the 1971 Robert Altman alt-western, The Cave and Mrs. Miller. Thanks for listening, folks. Only in the kitchen, Poppy. Do you think uh, Adam Driver not not being typecast or uh, might not be a victim of being Kylo Ren, but do you think he should stay away from roles where he's wearing black robes? So I sent this uh, when after Hunter sent the trailer to us, I sent it to some friends and uh, one of them said, well, at first he said, Adam Driver, literally the only good thing to come from girls, which I disagree with. Um, plenty of good things to come from girls. But then he went on to say, also, if anyone's going to pull off Orthodox Christian look, it's going to be Adam Driver, which <laughs> I think is pretty true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not saying he didn't look look great in it. I'm just saying black robes makes me think Kylo Ren at this point, for better or worse.